a vintage year in review, and thoughts on optimal play on episode 11 of So Many Insane Plays. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of So Many Insane Plays. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hey, folks. In this episode, we're going to do our 2011 year in review. We're going to hit some of the highlights and lowlights of the year. And in the second half of the show, we're going to have an in-depth discussion about optimal play in Magic, specifically about Vintage, but in general as well. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com or tweet us follow us on twitter at many insane plays First things first, let's talk about some announcements. Steve, you have a tournament announcement? We, uh, the Mean Deck Open is January 8th in Columbus, Ohio. So if you're available and you want to play some cards, it's unlimited proxy. Come out and, and join us. Always a good time. The last several of them have been a really great time. Mm-hmm. And I also wrote a 2011 year in review for eternalcentral.com. So you can check that out. And my recent trends and predictions for 2012, eternalcentral.com. And did you sell out of your gush book yet? The paperback is sold out, so... Uh, yeah. I hope anyone who listens to this show that uh, really wanted to got in on the ground level for that one. It's a good book. Let's dive right in, then, to the 2011... Vintage Year in Review. Steve, you come up with some good categories for us. Why don't you talk, talk about that? Well, we're going to take a look at new cards, new sets, new decks, and the biggest stories of the year. But first, Kevin, what did you think were the highlights of 2011? How would you characterize the year? My, my highlights from this year mostly stem around deck development, in my opinion. That's, obviously, that's the sort of focus we, you and I tend to take. We like to build new decks and play new decks. And there were lots of great developments this year. But as I think back on it, one thing that happened this year, since the unrestriction of Gush, we haven't had any real, except for new printings, any real shakeups in the format from a banned and restricted for, uh, standpoint. Mm-hmm. And so this year had a lot of <clears throat> consistency from that standpoint. The presence of Gush throughout the whole year in many different iterations. I really liked that aspect about this year, about how, and we've hit on it a number of times, about how the format jockeyed for position with different proactive strategies, different reactive strategies, control strategies, things that combated the norm, like the recent rise in Mystic Remora, or Rise Again, they well, should Gush say. Well, Gush wasn't really popular until midway through the year. Right. I mean, so Gush was kind of like, um, you know, not really on the radar. It was a, a low-visibility archetype because <laughs> the, the Dark Confidant decks were so popular at the beginning of the year. And that's part of it, too, is Gush rising to prominence after, and not being a dominant force after its re-restriction for that period. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was all nice. The deck flow of this year was really satisfying. So deck flow yeah. is your answer. What else did you enjoy about the year? What, did you, what was one of the more appealing aspects of the vintage format this year? 
Hmm. Granted, DCI didn't tinker with it much, and you enjoyed the deck flow and evolution of deck archetypes. New cards were highly relevant. Mm -hmm. That's always nice. Yeah. And the format had to change around them, sometimes how, for the good and sometimes for the bad. How would you compare this year to other years? Oh, geez. I, I really don't, I can't answer that. I don't have a long enough view uh, for certain go. years. I mean, I, it's just I'm not as good at summarizing the, the year-over-year trends as you are. Mm -hmm. uh, this felt like a great year, though. Uh, the years where there's some kind of major dominance don't strike me as very good years. So yeah. the, the, the Thirst for Knowledge Tez year and the, well, sev several examples of dominant archetypes in the past, those always seem a little unsatisfying in the end. And ultimately, I don't know, it seems like this year just flowed really well in the way a format should. Mm -hmm. Decks come and go, new printings influence the environment, you don't have to trim the leaves with bannings. Mm -hmm. It just felt like this is how a mature format should work. I completely agree. And this agree. is a good model for how vintage can exist going forward. I like your description of good deck flow. <laughs> That's something that you should be aiming for. You want to see the cycling in of new strategies mm -hmm. and new archetypes, both because of new printings and responsive to the metagame change. Um, you know, I think there are numerous examples of that, and I'll hit on those as we answer these questions. So let's start with our So Many Insane Plays Awards. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's an award ceremony. It's only an award ceremony if we both agree on, <laughs> on the answer. Um, so what did you think was the, the best new printing of the year? The best new printing of the year. Well... And bracketing what we mean by best. We'll get back to what we mean by best, but in my opinion, it's mental misstep. And why do you say that? The card has so much flexibility, it is not dominantly powerful, yet you have to respect it, similar to, say, Force of Will. Mm -hmm. People don't complain necessarily about Force of Will in the format, but it's important. Mm -hmm. And I think Mental Misstep plays a very similar role. It is It goes into numerous archetypes, obviously, even less restrictive than Force of Will in that respect. It helps control certain strategies, and it helps to reinforce some others. I just really think it's done very good things for the format without warping it completely. Well, I think Mental Misstep has a couple things going for it. One is that it seems like it's a card that will be used for a long time. Which I like. So it has a long time horizon. I'm not sure that a lot of new printings have that sort of time horizon that Mental Misstep potentially has. Right. Of course, that's completely subjective, you know, <laughs> saying it has a certain time horizon. But I think we, you know what I mean. There are certain cards that, you know, come in, they're new printings, and they shake things up, but you know they're not going to last. Right. You know, and like Slash Panther. Right. You know, doesn't necessarily have a long time horizon. Mental Misstep seems like it's a card that will be played, you know, a decade from now. Part of that is because it, be, it would be very difficult to identify, or, sorry, to develop a spell that was more efficient than Mental Misstep. Yeah. <laughs> and that's one of the primary certainly. metrics that defines play in Vintage is efficiency. Efficiency. But it's certainly not the only one. Naturally. Um, but uh, I think that there are, I think that the, the, the best new card, new printing, and I define best as sort of most impactful, mm -hmm. which, again, has its own criteria. We could debate what that exactly means. has to be Blightsteel Colossus, in my opinion, mm. simply because it shook so many things up. Now, we could give this the worst new printing <laughs> award as well, <laughs> simply because it's it really is an abomination in some respects. I mean, it's... Um, People point to Blightsteel Colossus as a card they hate the most in Vintage. Right. And I understand why. I think the biggest thing that Blightsteel Colossus has going against it is not the fact that it wins in one turn, but the fact that it led to the disappearance of all of the variety of Tinker bots that had appeared. Which was a very satisfying 
conflict when it came to yes. deck construction and play. Now, perhaps it's a, that is, of course, that's a consequence of the fact that it wins in one turn. Right. But that's an effect of, of, of that. But exactly. I mean, last December we, or January, we'd be having the discussion of which Tinker target do you play? Do you play, you know, Mere Battle Sphere because of its. Um, the number of permanents it makes. The permanents it makes, or would you play Inquil Leviathan because of its impermeability and vulnerability? Mm -hmm. Or do you play Sphinx? Uh, Sphinx for uh, life reasons, you know, and they're all they were all valid options. And yep. now Blightsteel has come in and pretty much dominated. I like it when there's more meaningful choice. So what bothers me about Blightsteel is not the fact that it wins in one turn, but the fact that perhaps as a consequence of the fact that it wins in one turn it's led to the disappearance of all the other Tinker targets. Right. I'm not sure that the fact that it wins in one turn is really significant from a gameplay standpoint as much as people say it is. I think that its salience, its perceptual salience gives it, mm -hmm. you know, causes it to be, uh, get more wrath than it perhaps deserves. <laughs> I mean... Most of the, the Tinker targets are pretty evil anyway, so... <laughs> right. Uh, that brings up a, an interesting point. When you were talking about this before and just now, I was thinking how Type 1 deck are almost entirely constructed out of things that are mistakes of design in one way or another. Right. Things that are unfair or just simply too good, too efficient for their mana cost. The format is predicated on those things. Right. There are some of them... If Time Walk had been printed this year, for example... Mm -hmm. We would be talking about time walk in this very same way, about yeah. how it's way undercosted and people don't like how you can get this effect for so yeah. cheap and things yeah. like that. The format is just riddled with cards that have this yeah. same sort of behavior. Not every card in Vintage is a mistake. I mean, some Naturally. cards, some cards like Trinisphere, are pretty anemic in other formats. <laughs> you know, right. They they don't do much. And some of them are very well designed, like say Chalice of the Void, which yeah. is not not overly powered in vintage, but serves a very different purpose than it does in other formats. Exactly. So, I mean, it's interesting that you say both Mental Misstep and Blightsteel are mistakes. I think, uh, I like Mental Misstep. I don't really like Blightsteel Colossus, but right. I'm not I'm not as upset as mo most people or many people are about Blightsteel. You know, those two cards are an interesting exercise in opposites. <clears throat> Blightsteel Colossus sees almost no play in any other format. With oh. a few exceptions of strange ramp decks, but it's not good in Type 2 or Legacy or anything. Right. In Legacy, you play Emrakul if you want right. to put something crazy into play. Right. And Tinker's Band. Right. So, Blightsteel Colossus, similar to Trinisphere, as you mentioned before, it really can only exist in this format. It peaks in Vintage. At which point... It, it's Vintage has the, the best way to cheat into play. Exactly. Vintage, which was a pre-existing condition. Right. Mental Misstep, on the other hand, had to get banned in Modern and Legacy... And is still perfectly allowable in Vintage. And it was slow to be adopted in Vintage. I right. was a resistor. I mean, I thought, I did not think Mental Misstep would be very good. And it's, there's, a re there's reasons for that, which we can yeah. get back to if we want. But I'm just pointing out how Blightsteel Colossus is at its best. I think Mental Misstep would be pervasive, right. which it is. at its best in Vintage, and Mental Misstep really isn't. That's right. It, Mental Misstep was it's at its best, I think, in Legacy. In Legacy right. where, where you have so much compression around the one casting cost mark. Right. And I think that's part of the thing that will keep Mental Misstep perpetually fair yes. in Vintage, is that because of the Moxon, because of the inherent mana acceleration of the format, we are less reliant than Legacy on the one casting cost slot. In some ways, I think Mental Misstep has improved Vintage. It's made the Ancestral Recall you know, battle more intense, and it certainly caused, you know, makes an early Ancestral less game-swinging. 
And at least from the when you have a mental misstep to oppose it. And similar to that, I, I believe it's a skill tester from a debt construction standpoint. Yeah. Uh, my teammate Brian and I went around and around on this one time about whether or not it was a, a an auto include a no skill kind of card, or whether or not it really did belie a certain skill in debt construction and also in debt in play. And I believe it's a skill tester from a deck construction standpoint. I believe it does not go as a four of in every deck. That much is obvious. Mm-hmm. It doesn't go in a num- number of decks. But even in the decks where it's good, I don't think it's an obvious four of. Sometimes two or three is the right number. Mm-hmm. And I like that aspect of it. I think that's I think that's its long-term position in type one. What, um, what do you think is the best set in 2011? Well... I, I needed your help on this one to get a little bit of timing uh, from the, the full year, especially when we started talking about our cards. <clears throat> but I'm going to go with my mental misstep brethren and say New Phyrexia, because I think the obviously there are a number of cards in Slash Panther and Phyrexian Metamorph that have and Dismember that have the Phyrexian mana and are good for the format in the sense that they're very flexible. But I just feel like as a set that set had the biggest impact on this year. It had massive overhaul in the immediate term in the workshop archetype. Yep. And then it had subtle, more subtle effects over time, as you alluded to, because of things like Noxious Revival, Dismember, and Mental Misstep sneaking into yeah. sideboards and later more main decks. Well, you make a very good case, but I, I still think the answer has to go to Innistrad. And I, I give the... the uh, So, I, no awards yet, because we have... <laughs> nobody so many insane play awards. <laughs> But um, I definitely think that Innistrad will have, I mean, no doubt Mental Misstep has a long time horizon. But I think Snapcaster Mage has a very long time horizon as well. Mm-hmm. Arguably the best blue creature of all time. What I like about Innistrad is that it's pr- produced three blue creatures that have seen play in different ways over different periods of time. So Snapcaster Mage is arguably the best blue creature of all time. Laboratory Maniac is amazing in Doomsday, and I think Doomsday is, you know, right now it's weak, but it can definitely come back, and will come back. And Delver of Secrets is amazing, and I mean, I don't want to say it's a great card, but it is definitely um, a playable card, and it's a card that identifies playable in Innistrad, and it does some really good things, and uh, all three of those creatures have had a big impact uh, in Vintage in the last, you know, since Innistrad came out. And I think I think it's you know the it's difficult to separate the interaction of Snapcaster Mage and Mental Misstep. <laughs> it certainly is. They're tied at the hip. <laughs> um, and the same could be said for you know cards like Flusterstorm. But uh, I think I would have to say point to Innistrad um, as the as the best set of the year. What do you think are the the best decks of the of the year? What's the best identified deck flow? Yeah. What, what's the best new deck or best deck? What that that's. Uh, that's too hard for me to answer just now. Yeah. I want you to go first. Well, I think one of the decks that I would have to say... Well, let me just preface with this remark. One of the great things about the year is there has been no deck that's had like great performance all year. And so the Gush decks didn't really emerge until midsummer. Mm-hmm. East Coast wins, and there's been you know an explosion of decks that I've been playing of, of Gush decks. You know, Cobra Gush, which uh, in Bob Gush, um, Remora Gush, and then uh, me and others have been playing... Gush Grow, again, with Goyce in the Landstill metagame, um, and, and certainly Rich A's Gush deck. But Gush barely appeared in the first five months of the year. Um, you know, when we did our first podcast in the summer, we, we were talking about um, the branches of decks and how 
Brian's Vintage Control was like one of the best decks in the format in the American metagame. Mm-hmm. We've come a long way since then. Um, so with the caveat that there doesn't seem to be a, a deck that has a, had universally strong performance all year, I think that one of the most innovative decks, I thought, was Turbo Tesseret. And I really liked how Turbo Tesseret was not fueled by a new printing, but was directly responsive to the metagame. So it was designed to combat the workshop menace at the beginning of the year, and it did so very effectively. You know, it's not to say that four Tezzeret decks weren't, weren't, you know, when Tezzeret was printed, my first thought was, let's make Mono Blue with four Tezzeret. <laughs> but to design a deck responsive to the shop metagame by putting in these four Tezzerets and all these artifact acceleration, like Grim Monoliths and all these keys so that once you get the Tezzeret in play, it's an auto-win in the tops. It was a very innovative deck, and it demonstrates how vintage card pool can be used and manipulated to respond to specific metagame configurations. So I thought I'd have to give that, and it, and it won the biggest tournament of the year. So And not just one, it was the first and second place deck. And you're referring to... The uh, Bazaar of Moxon, right? The Bazaar. Yeah. 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 Um, it won. It got first and second place at you know 350 player tournament. So it has as good as claim as any to the best deck of the year. I mean, Dredge uh, won the two biggest North American events, but it didn't have sustained performance. Neither did Turbo Tesseret, but Turbo Tesseret won a lot of tournaments over a period of time. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could give this this award to Dredge, to Landstill, to Turbo Tesseret. To Bob Gush, you know, has a case, winning, you know, getting second and third place at the champs, and then um, uh, one uh, Chris Pecula won a major event with it. What do you think is the thinking along the lines of major event winnings? I have a lot of respect for Dredge this year, and we're going to talk about it more later. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like Dredge won through innovation or any kind of grand development this year. It, yeah. it evolved. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but I. I don't want to insult dredge players, but I feel as though the deck backed into its dominant position in the metagame <laughs> as other things changed around it. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not an insult. It's just well, the deck didn't do something to forge a new place. It just arrived in a place that was vacated, in my opinion. Well, it's interesting. But, you know, I think dredge players would point to the Sun Titan, build, and, but that and, wasn't necessarily new at Vintage Champs. Well, and that's right. And that, yeah. that's an evolution that I'm pointing to. So right. that's not the deck that was stagnant. But I don't, I don't want to rail against Dredge here. The point is, I think that the, the, the second and third place deck that you and Paul played at the Vintage Champs, the Bob Gush deck, was an awesome deck. It was the dominant deck of that time. It was the dominant deck of, of that time, and I think it was a little it went a little understated because you guys didn't win, but yeah. it was a very, a very nice innovation in the sense that you broke through a little bit of a barrier of players' resistance to playing gushes with bobs and we relied on that to innovate it it wouldn't have been an innovation right. had that been in but then there were all sorts of tertiary innovations that went along with it and the trigon predators and then the, the disruption package to go with it at the time which since evolved away from that so it was a very well trigon wasn't new no trigon wasn't yeah. new but i'm saying that it's a whole package it, it oh, was, it was a, a controlling gush yeah. bob deck and the trigons were key to that and then the spell pierces and the number of jaces mm-hmm. and all that jazz I just think that was such a well-conceived deck that then proved that it had legs. Because mm-hmm. then it went on to win a few tournaments, as you said, and Chris won with it out east. And then and then it got a little diluted and it moved on. But I think for that point in time, that deck was just awesome. Yeah. I really wish that, one, that either you or Paul had won with that deck because it would have gotten a lot more respect, I think. <laughs> Plus, I'm Me one too. of those people who, would, <laughs> who did not enjoy the fact that Dredge won the, the Vintage Champs. 
I'm not going to well, begrudge it, but I didn't enjoy it. I, I will say this. I, I think that um, Vin, Dredge winning the Vintage Champs was good in the respect, in the sense that it was the first time a Bizarre deck had won. You know? and, and there's something to be said for that. What if Gush had won again? You yeah. know? People go, oh, not again. You know? so, <laughs> I, I like the aspect of it demonstrating the, some of the diversity and the cyclical nature of the format. From that standpoint, it was so you, definitely an interesting and so good you, thing. You think Dredge is the best deck of the year? That's that's fair. What's the biggest story of the year? Well, that's why I said I wanted to get back to Dredge. Okay. Because in my opinion, Dredge is the biggest story of the year for for many of reasons, which you just alluded to a few of them. A bizarre deck, which there isn't really another good bizarre deck. The next best bizarre deck is right. pretty far down the list. Well, the Dragon deck made top eight in the champs. It, it did, but it doesn't have a lot of other doesn't have a whole lot of other performances yeah. to point to that deck. And I think that it speaks to <laughs> some of the variety of vintage which you alluded to. Now, not everybody likes that either. And I like the fact that people should like variety. But I agree. I like the fact that the deck commanded respect. Mm-hmm. I, I, I won't. I don't think ever play dredge in an event because it's not my style. But I like the fact that it commanded people's respect by winning that particular event and a number of other big events throughout the year. The deck is, is I think, now finally has the level of respect it deserves. I agree with that. I think that, uh, I think that it, Dredge winning is probably the biggest story of the year. But not just because it won the Vintage Champs in the Waterbury. Not only. I think part of the reason it's the biggest story is because of Brian DeMar's comments before <laughs> the Vintage Champs. That's right. That precipitated and motivated... Mark to play it, yeah. to pick it up, and to challenge, you know, Brian's somewhat hyperbolic views of the metagame. No, they were hyperbolic. They were views. hyperbolic, yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that, um, I think that uh, that fact lent it the patina of drama, of dramatic mm-hmm. arc, you know, and sort something of that vintage fails to have, and oriented vi- Brian sort of as the villain, you know, <laughs> and and Mark as the so it, it gave it a sort of a hero, heroic cast. You're right. It, vintage often does not have a dramatic arc. Mm-hmm. So there was a narrative to it. Mm-hmm. There was, it was. A, yeah, you know, it's funny. I was thinking in, when you said story, the biggest story, I was really thinking with my metagame hat on mm-hmm. and not in terms of narrative. of the community yeah. and the narrative. You're right. And for in that sense, out. it's even more obviously it's such a great story for the year. That was a... That was a very ironically satisfying point of the year to have that kind of that kind of conflict of, in community and narrative, and and it, it was funny for anyone who was there on site, which was I know a select few of you. Uh, <laughs> Mark was just elated, and he stood up, hands in the air, about how he'd he'd uh, uh, to use his words, he took the Demar's challenge. <laughs> yeah, challenge accepted. Yeah, and I don't it's know that, that new meme. Right, I don't know that Demar's <laughs> intended it as such, of course, right. but. To, it, any point at which you have that kind of champion challenger kind of uh, duality is always kind of satisfying from a narrative standpoint. Right. So I think our so many insane play award of the year has to go to Dredge. Yeah. Um, I do think that there is another major, major story this year that has not gotten press. We've talked a little bit about, but has evolved since we last talked about it. And that is really, I think that if we look not from a dramatic arc, but from a metagame tools perspective is the shifting array of counterspell options and the reconfiguration of counterspell tools. And this is really significant for a number of reasons. I think this may actually 
rival the emergence of the, the, you know, the success of Dredge as the story of the year for another reason. One of the questions that, that uh, one of our listeners responding to our last podcast said that they thought the whole is vintage too fast debate was one of the most, you know, the biggest story of the year. And the proliferation of new counterspell printings has contributed to that. You know, so Brian specifically points to mental misstep and flusterstorm. Mm-hmm. Those are both. I mean, you identified mental misstep as the biggest printing, most important printing of the year. So that feeds this story that I'm suggesting. With never before have we had so many counterspell options. Mm-hmm. You have mental misstep, flusterstorm, spell pierce, force of will, mana drain, mind break trap. Well, then, then yeah, now mind break trap, and they they're used to combat each other in different ways. So, mental misstep by spell pierce. In, in Red Elemental Blast, mm-hmm. um, Mind Break Trap fights Flusterstorm. Flusterstorm mm-hmm. fights these these mental misstep wars. Right. Um, and and I really think Misdirection is poised for a huge breakout, which I talk about in my in my article this week on trends and predictions for 2012, which I'll not talk about any more about here. <laughs> but um, I really think that we have, we are seeing a Cambrian age. Of, of counter spells. I don't know what that means. It refers to the explosion of diversity in life. So the the, ex- okay. the Cambrian age is the, the the age in which uh, there was explosion of species, and so we're seeing a cam- this year was the Cambrian age of counter spells. <laughs> I I agree. I think it's awesome. The and one of the reasons why it's a big story that went unsung, I think, to to your point, is that it's all sort of behind the scenes and hidden a little bit by the machinations of just various deck constructions. Right. If you look just at decks or archetypes... You'd have to follow else. trends for a while yeah. to see the story unfold. Right. But so, one of, I alluded to earlier about the Bob Gush deck, the presence of Spell Pierce. Yes. Which yeah. a lot of people would say, okay, so what, Spell Pierce. That was a major... Decision. That was a major decision on yours, which influenced your success in that event. Yes. Because you had Mana Drains in that deck before that. We had Thought in the... Oh, uh, you had Thought yeah. And the switch over to Spell Pierce... Just dr- to come down the stack. Yeah, it just it just dramatically changed the way that deck played out. It seems like a small thing, but every one of these counters that you're mentioning yes. has that kind of effect on well, these decks if you switch them out. In Brian's article, "Is Vintage Too Fast?" He said that the the beginning of this trend was the printing of Spell Pierce, mm-hmm. which he pointed as you know briefly sur- surpassing and superseding Mana Drain. We've we're now in the full blown Cambrian age of of this. You know, we mental misstep, Flusterstorm. Um, all printed this year, and if it wasn't for those spells, Mindbreak Trap would not be seeing play. Right. And certainly, um, Misdirection is a direct response to, I think, to Snapcaster Mage emerging. And I, th- I think we're going to see, you know, ever-shifting array and configurations of these spells. These aren't, you know, there's only so much room for counter spells, and now you have to decide which of these you're going to play. And it's really incredible, you know. You have more options than ever, and it's going to be daunting for a lot of players and mm-hmm. but it's a great thing for deck building i just remembered another example that you haven't listed so far which is spell snare oh right exactly which exactly if, if our listeners would listen back a few episodes i predicted a while back the reemergence of that card as certain key to casting cost counters came about that right. that card much like all the other cards listed is highly efficient at what it does when it does its thing correctly and it's done very well yeah it's um, really good right now so um, it, it, it counters just about everything Landfell plays. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I played three, no, I played two main deck spell snares at the last 
Team Sirius Open up in Sandusky a couple of weeks back, and I played against Jeff Mose and his Landstill deck in the top four. And the first time I announced a spell snare in our match, he said, oh, that card is so good against my yeah. deck. Because he's right. It counters everything that matters in that deck. It's mm-hmm. insane. And he had bobs in his Landstill deck. Even more targets. I know it. So, I think I think that is certainly a, a story that we will be following for the next year, for the foreseeable future. It's is, hard to imagine that we'll ever get another year with this many new counterspell printings. Or or a year in which which brings out so many relevant counterspells. There will be a natural consolidation again. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only natural for these things to ebb and flow. I think you're right. Next year we may see a contraction down to only a few. But then, but that but, just precedes the next expansion. Right, well, and like, who knows what they're going to print. When, so. when Spell Pierce disappears is it's when it becomes it's strong again. You know, you, you know, and exactly new printings. You mentioned, when we were talking about best sets, I stand by my nomination of New Phyrexia, but we shouldn't pass over the mention, or the honorable mention, of the Commander decks. Mm-hmm. And while they really only netted one card that sees they play in Vintage, as we all know. It's a big one. But also, they're more important, I think, from their precedent setting, which we don't need to rehash here. We went Mm -hmm. through it when we reviewed them. But from a precedent standpoint, that's just huge in terms of printings for this year as well. New sets come and go. Mental Misstep and Snapcaster Mage could have been in a number of sets for one reason or another. But the Commander decks are unique. And we have confirmation from Wizards that there will be more. Absolutely. And there's plain plain... Oh, that's right, Plane Chase. The Plane Chase decks are t- following that same model and including new unique cards, starting with their next printing, which I can't remember when it is. So new cards coming out of non-booster packs, non-random decks, I'm sorry, non-random products, is the wave of the future for well, this it format. It allowed them to print another Storm card. Mm-hmm. There's no way Foster Storm would have been able to... You're probably right. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout the history of this show, one of our long-running and most popular segments has been our vintage scenarios, where we dive into very specially tailored in-game scenarios involving hands and decks and plays on the board. And Steve and I have endeavored to cleave through the, the bad lines of play and really analyze and dig into what is the best line of play for us in these scenarios. Through varying degrees of information, from almost perfect information where we have our hand and we've duressed our opponent and are choosing the next several moves, to the almost Im- completely imperfect information where we're looking at our opening seven and choosing our, whether or not to mulligan. Without we, knowing what the opponent is or what they're going Knowing to, nothing, right? right. For the most part, we've agreed uh, on these decisions. Uh, where we've disagreed has been real judgment calls, where there have been close questions and the consequences of, lines pl- of l- certain lines of play are remote. Which should come as no surprise, but then the question belies another underlying question, which is, if all the information is known, you know your opponent's deck or hand, and everything in play is known, is there still room for judgment calls relative to your opponent's actions? This question was born out of... Can we disagree? Can we disagree still at this point? Legitimate disagreement. And this line of thought was born out of some reader-listener feedback that we received from our last scenarios podcast, Steve, would you quote that? He says, "This is this is the listener. I never assume that my opponent will play less than optimally. Why would you?" And so, in discussing this, Steve and I came up with some two pretty reasonable answers to this question. The first one, which is much less interesting, is that they simply do. People make mistakes. History, both individually and collectively, has shown that in tournament magic, people make mistakes. That's not really worth 
analyzing, though? That's a simple answer. The more interesting answer is, is there, in every scenario, an actual optimal play? So we have uh, some examples that we want to present. Um, one is an opening hand that is as follows. This is the first, so follow with us. Um, your opening hand is Mox Ruby, Volcanic Island, your only two mana sources, Preordain, Red Elemental Blast, Tarmogoyf, Mindbreak Trap, and Blightsteel Colossus. So there's Mox Ruby, Volcanic Island, Preordain, Red Elemental Blast, Tarmogoyf, Mindbreak Trap, and Blightsteel Colossus. Your opponent goes Polluted Delta Go on their first turn, and you draw Black Lotus. What do you do? There are so many lines of play here, but they ultimately boil down to a decision of what role you want to take in this exactly. game. You have an aggressive card, in a purely aggressive card in Tarmogoyf, a flexibly aggressive controlling card in Preordain, and two counter spells to play the control role or to back up your threats. At the extreme, you have to make a choice as to whether you're going to play Tarmogoyf or you're going to hold up the Black Lotus to hard cast Mindbreak Trap. So you could, if you just played Moxland Lotus, hard cast both Red Elemental Blast and Mindbreak Trap. But if you play, that's a mutually exclusive option to playing Tarmogoyf. Right. And and, all, and amongst all of that, then, is where it's does Preordain question. fit? Right. Preordain can help you play both roles, but clearly, as Steve put it, the act of casting Preordain cuts you off of the double counterspell hard cast route, unless, of course, you draw into a mox that works. Yeah. But so, so the question posed here is really a role question. This is not a question that can be answered by more information about your opponent's deck, more information about your opponent's hand, or even more information about what they're going to do. This is purely a decision that's to do with your strategic orientation to the game and the board. Some players would posit that and perhaps looking back after this game, that there there was a correct play. Now, mm -hmm. I should have done this. Mm -hmm. But the more fundamental question is, is there ever truly an optimal play in a scenario such as this? Well, the, the whole question that, that Mike, the Mike Flores equation is, misassignment of role equals game loss. Mm -hmm. So his assumption would be, you need to assume the correct role. But how do you know what the correct role is? <laughs> so you could know everything that there is to know about your opponent's deck, for example, going into the scenario like this. This could be a top eight or a finals match mm -hmm. where you've been given a deck list. So that kind of information could be known. You could know quite an awful lot about your opponent, per se. It could be someone, a teammate, or, or an, a rival team that you've played a number of times. So it's not as though you're devoid of information. We don't want to give you that impression. Right. But the simple fact is, knowing almost everything that could be known at this point, aside from what they're about to do, mm -hmm you still can't actually choose with certainty what the right play is. Well, let's suppose you have tested this matchup, and you know what it is, even though, you're, again, you have perfect information, you decide the control role is the superior role. Well, do you play preordain or not? <laughs> Does preordain right. advance you to a superior control position or not? Um, if you preordain into a mox and a mental misstep, it might well, because you developed. But if you preordain into another Tarmogoyf and a Mana Drain, you have not. Right. So, Steve, at this point, this is one of those scenarios where we probably wouldn't have... Uh, we would have debated long and hard in the past right. about 
which one set us up for the, the most opportunity of success or well, in particular matchups, but we wouldn't have reached any kind of conclusion. Because we need to know more about the opponent's deck. Right. So this is a this is to some extent this is an imperfect information scenario, but it does raise the question that role is more than just information. Mm-hmm. It's analysis. Mm-hmm. It's um, a deter- determination born out of experience, not simply pure knowledge and some sort of like, I know what my opponent's hand in, in deck is. And to tie this back to the way we framed this initial setup is that if you magically knew what your opponent's hand was, if your Blightsteel Colossus was a Cataxian probe instead, you might be able to make a, a slightly more informed opinion. You'd right. know how to position your counterspells. You'd know if Reb was live or not, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Even in that scenario, though, you still may not know what the correct role is exactly. for this game or this matchup. In some ways, it's a very simplistic answer to simply say, misassignment of role equals game loss. Or, <laughs> I mean, because how do you how do you know that? I mean, it, it, to me, it's far from clear that what the answer to this hand is. It seems to me that playing Tarmogoyf seems perfectly legitimate. If your opponent's playing Landstill, it becomes a very persuasive play. Mm-hmm. But if your opponent's playing a Gush deck, let's assume that they're playing Gush deck, it could just as easily win or lose the game. I'm, I, I don't even know if there's a correct play here. Correct, in some sort of you know clearly correct optimal play. I've run this configuration a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. You know, it, or if there is a correct play, is it knowable? You know, especially the do you play the preordain. So we endeavor to help you work through various scenarios by providing lots of logical lines of thinking and, and evaluating their various ends. This one, however, requires far more, I think, experience and intuition than anything we can provide in what a show you, like what this. What would you do, though, in this scenario? My natural inclination is that the I want more information about what my options are, yes. and especially because of that Blightsteel Colossus in my hand. Mm-hmm. If I play Preordain off of Volcanic Island here, I still have at least access to hardcasting either uh, Red Elemental Blast or uh, Mindbreak Trap, right? or I could play Tarmogoyf and Red Elemental Blast and still have the mm-hmm. off chance of being a trap-cost Mindbreak Trap. So for me, it's uh, Volcanic Island. Preordain. Volcanic Island Preordain, sorry. So you wouldn't play the Mox first. The Mox would protect your Preordain. Well, I'm sorry, I hadn't, I hadn't elaborated far yeah. enough at that point. I don't consider Preordain to be a, a very high-value target for mental misstep in this metagame, so I'm not very concerned about my Preordain being misstepped, so much so that even if I had played my Mox, I don't think I would protect my Preordain. See, I would simply because you have the one-land hand. So I would... I think that... To me, one of the reasons that role is so role is does not specific does not specifically guide plays. Yeah. What it is is it simply a metaphor <laughs> that suggests plays? But there are situations where the application of the role metaphor doesn't actually provide clear guidance at all. Mm-hmm. That's one of the problems with metaphors. Naturally. <laughs> and so, I think that you know, um, from my perspective, the loss of being able to hard cast mindbreak trap is an acceptable loss here because. If they play more than two spells, it's live. So you only have a gap between one and, you know, right. th- three in terms of needing to play both Reb and Mindbreak Trap. Right. I agree. So, so I think that it's fine to be able to cut it off because the development function of Preordain is so important. And I would I would probably go Volcanic Island, Mox, Ruby, Preordain to protect the Preordain with Red Elemental Blast. Okay. But then you open the... Lotus to being Mindbreak Trap, but then you can protect it with the Red Blast. So, 
So I'm fine with that play, and that's that's probably what I would do here. And in fact, that's exactly what I did, and I preordained into Mental Misstep, which I popped into my hand, and Time Walk, which I kept on top. Wow, pretty nice. Because I saw Time Walk... Did you play Goyf? I played Goyf, but yeah. only because I saw the Time Walk. Interesting. So I that inclined me towards viewing the aggro role as a more successful line. Well, and that's a good point. I was thinking along the lines, too, well, that Tarmogoyf... You said the preordain would give you more information. No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm following up on that, that the, the Tarmogoyf has still has highly variable value mm -hmm. because as many people know <laughs> turn one tarmogoyf has zero power all things other being other, all things being equal not with lotus though i know yeah. but the point is is that yeah. on its own tarmogoyf has zero power right. and so it doesn't provide that much of a clock but if you can dump a sorcery and a artifact into the graveyard in the process of casting it and then expect with some pretty good reliability that an instant's going to get in there within a turn or two then that changes the value of goyf dramatically. Right. So this hand, to, re to reiterate, is an example of a hand where the disagreement doesn't arise because of the likely consequences of a particular line of play, but because of disagreement of what might be the proper role. Right. Um, so another scenario might be um, this one. You play turn one Tropical Island Preordain. Your opponent goes Mana Crypt Land Tinker, and it resolves. Now it's your second turn, and your hand is Tropical Island, Scalding Tarn, Volcanic Island, so you have three lands in hand, Brainstorm, Gush, Vampiric Tutor, Yogmoss Will, and Mox Emerald. You have three lands and a Mox in hand, Brainstorm, Vamp, Gush, and Yog Will. And you your opponent has Blightsteel Colossus in Blightsteel play. Blightsteel on the board. So, on the surface, you have immediate access to Hercules Recall right. via Vamp Tutor and Gush. Yes. And you have the mana to cast that With and make that play. Land, yeah. Just enough. Now, ignoring for the moment that a number of counter spells disrupt that play. Right. Mental misstep disrupts that play. It stops the vamp. Yeah. Force of will. Force of will stops the gush or the vamp or the or the hurples. Reb, mind break trap. Mind break trap. Well, stops. assuming your opponent's top that tapped out. Yeah. And you even still lose to misdirection with that play. So right. it's pretty vulnerable, that play. Right. If your opponent has anything to say about it, you're probably toast. Yeah. So... On the surface, you have your answer. It's right there in front of you. But then the question becomes, what else do you have? Vampiric Tutor plus Gush plus Yawgmoth's Will, not to mention Brainstorm, should throw off some red lights to any seasoned vintage player that you have the ability to do something here that's a little bit more broken. Via Vamp Tutor and Gush, you could go get Black Lotus for... A pretty simple example, and cast Yawgmoth's Will. Right. With a, a number of variations in the middle there. You can brainstorm, you could try to brainstorm before or after. Right. You could even, because, of, again, due to the presence of Gush, you could go get Fast Bond with right. your Vamp Tutor. So if you tap, a, if you play a land, if you, if you play the Tarn, Sacrifice it for Underground Sea, tap it to play Vamp, you can float a blue, Gush into Fast Bond, Play the mox, cast it, uh, tap it to play fast bomb with the blue floating. Replay Three both lands, lands uh, and replay both lands and play the two other lands in your hand. There's only one left in your hand at that point. Sorry, the other land yeah. left in your hand. So you'd have three lands plus a mana floating with which to use Yogmoth's Will and Four Brainstorm. Mana, so you could brainstorm and then Yogmoth's Will. Yeah. Replay the Scalding Tarn and the Gush, mm -hmm. and then vamp for Hercules Recall there. Or if you vamp into another land, a uh, brainstorm into another land. Or don't brainstorm at all. <laughs> you could vamp into Tinker and play Tinker, and then trade Lightsteels. So, 
through thinking about this a number of different ways, Steve and I arrived at a couple of different conclusions that also get you to an answer to your opponent's Blightsteel Colossus. Right. You can get to Hercules via your own Yawgmoth's Will and draw a few more cards in the process. Mm-hmm. You or can get to your own Blightsteel Colossus again via Yawgmoth's Will and then be in somewhat of a standoff mm-hmm. with dueling Colossi, mm-hmm. which... For anyone who's been in that scenario before, is not great. Yeah. <laughs> it is not. It's not enjoyable to pass the turn when you both have Colossus and your opponent has going to have mana and cards. Right. But especially when you've spent your Yawgmoth's well. Right. But the simple fact is, is that after you get past the surface level, there are at least two different ways, maybe more, to get to another answer. To deal with the same. Problem. To deal with the same problem. So the question is, which is optimal? Right. Who knows. <laughs> Which one of those is optimal? A lot of players, again, seasoned vintage players, might be very attracted to the notion of simply drawing more cards. Right. With the backup, not backup, but with the security of being able to vamp for Hercules inside of their Yawgmoth's will. Mm-hmm. But with the window of those three cards could be Ancestral, Time Walk, Mana Crypt, or something silly right. that lets you be very explosive on that turn. Right. Another Gush, for example, would be incredible in that scenario. One position is that there is an optimal play. So. Mm-hmm. As a listener, you might be saying to yourself, well, there is an optimal play, we just don't know what it is. Right. Well, why don't we know what it is? We don't know what it is because we haven't run it enough simulations, and we, or we haven't done all the, ca- the mathematical calculations. Uh-huh. That's an epistemological claim. That's, the saying, that's saying that there is an optimal play, but it is a limit of, to our knowledge right now. It's not necessarily that we lack information in the, in the sense of what our opponent's hand is or what our opponent's library is, but we haven't run the calculations on that information or conducted the complete analysis to know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. And we can't in a practical sense because of the, the time, time constraints, right. Yeah. Um, there is uh, you, anything else you want to say on that? No, I think that one pretty much sets its own stage. The, the, the fact is you can arrive at a similar conclusion through many different roads and which one is the best one is really up in the air. Right. So in, in that scenario you have a very specific tactical objective deal with Blightsteel Colossus. Mm-hmm. But what if the objective is not so clear? Like, what if, you know, it's actually possible to, say... Win the game. Win the game. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a scenario that's a little bit more complex, but it's worth thinking about. So your opening hand is Mox Ruby and Polluted Delta, your only mana sources. Necropotence, Dark Blast, Spell Pierce, Force of Will, and Jace the Mind Sculptor. Your opponent is on the play, but they have mulliganed to six. They play Mox, Jet, Duress. They think about your hand, and they look, and they see the Force, Spell Pierce, Jace, Mox, Ruby, Dark Blast, and Necropotence as targets, and they decide to take Force. They play a Polluted Delta and pass the turn. They have three cards left in their hand. You untap, and you draw a Lotus Cobra. You sacrifice your Delta, and you play your Mox, and you cast Lotus Cobra, and you pass the turn. Your opponent plays Mox Emerald, so a second Mox, another Delta, and they cast Tinker for Inkwell Leviathan. Not Blightsteel, Inkwell Leviathan. <laughs> you untap, you draw a Ponder, you play it, and you see these three cards. Misty Rainforest, Mox Emerald, and Hercules Recall. What do you do? Misty Rainforest, what was the second Mox one? Emerald. Mox Emerald, and Hercules, and Hercules Recall. Recall. Again, we're faced with a Tinker target, and again, we have direct access to our Hercules Recall. Somewhat differently in this scenario, we can't play the Hercules this turn, but we don't need to, because yes. it's Inkwell Leviathan, and this is 2010. Yes. So, we have access to the Hercules, 
we can leave it there safely in our library. We can draw it into our hand and draw the land next turn. Opportunities abound. But right. because we've got Lotus Culbert and we just found a fetch land, we also have access to... Potentially three mana from that. Right. That, that thing. So the options are, first of all, you have to decide whether you're going to shuffle the ponder. Right. You're or probably going to keep it. Yeah. Um, so you, you can put Misty Rainforest in your hand, Mox Emerald to your hand, and Hercules to your hand. And you need to decide which card you're going to have to be in the second position. And on the board, you've got a Tropical Island and a Ruby. And a Ruby and a, and cobra. a cobra. Yeah, and the island so is tapped. you can put, if you if you pop the Misty Rainforest into your hand now, you can either, pl you can play it and hold up Spell Pierce, which <laughs> you're probably not going to actually play, but they know you have. So it's one of those leveled plays. They know you have, right. and you can manipulate that information to your advantage. It's important to note that your opponent, if you draw and play the card off and of you the ponder this turn, you, your opponent knows your whole hand. So Right, right. They know your whole hand. So you know they know, uh -huh. but but they also don't know that you don't want to shuffle your library and right. put the Hercules beneath. So you could play the Misty Rainforest to feign Spell Pierce, and then next turn you could play Hercules Recall and Spell Pierce, or you could sacrifice the Misty Rainforest now and just play Necropotence mm -hmm. and draw some cards and then suck up some damage next turn, or. You can hold the land, not playing land, which is a counterintuitive play. Right. And and um, wait till next turn to get the come into play benefits and use all your mana at once. Use all your mana at once, and you can play Necropotence and Hercules Recall. Or you can play Jace this or turn. Or you could play Jace, but it can't bounce the, the Inkwell Leviathan. Right. And you can't stop your opponent from killing Jace next turn if they so right. choose. But if you play a land now, this turn, you could play Jace next turn. You can play Jace this turn, though. You have a Mox. Uh, it's... You're right. You can play Jace. You can play this Jace turn. now if you want. Jace this turn. But right. the difference between Jace next turn and this turn is, it, it's present, but it's arguable. <laughs> right. So there's a, a ton of options here. A right. Ton. You can play Jace now, Necropotence now. You can do play the land. You cannot play the land. If you don't play the land, you can play Jace, uh, and potentially Hercules next turn. You could play. Um, you can definitely play Necro and Hercules next turn. Or Jason Spellpierce next turn, or Necro and Spellpierce next turn. <laughs> it's incredible. This is another, just like the prior scenario, it's another one where you have access to basically the most direct solution, which is just take the land, take the Hercules, next turn, cast them. You'll have a Spellpierce to help you yes. back it up, which may or may not help. But the point is, you've got a Hercules with a little bit of counterprotection. Well, this is a scenario from the Waterbury last year where I went for the play of playing Hercules and protecting it. And I lost the game because my opponent had Brainstorm and Yawgmoth's Will as one of the cards in his hand and one of the cards on top of his library. And I, ba I bounced the Leviathan, he brainstormed, Yawgmoth's Will replayed, tink brain replayed Tinker and, and won the game. Yep. And I was sitting on no mana. And the option of playing Jace was floated about, even though... That was Brian DeMars' play. Even though it looks on the surface like kind of a highly inefficient brainstorm if your opponent really does choose to attack Jace next turn you've, you've bought another inherent advantage of time mm -hmm. another 7 damage but how much value you get out of that is, is anyone's guess it is, and vintage turns are great but it's entirely uncertain turns if you're going to shuffle right now but this, this, this scenario is fascinating for a host of reasons one, it really draws in the, it brings into focus sort of risks you know, and the value of cards. So what is the value of Necropodes? What is the value of Jace? Mm -hmm. Brian viewed the value of Jace as brainstorm at least once, suck up seven damage. Right, a time, time walk. walk. You know, um, 
one of the things here is if you play Necropotence the following turn and Hercules, you can use the Necropotence to draw a bunch of cards to protect the Hercules. Right. Now... And if they counter it, you've successfully used it as bait. But you've sucked up seven damage in, before. So right. it's a very risky <laughs> <laughs> play. You might not get, you know, a counterspell with the Necropotence. Yep. Um, it's it's a risk, high-risk, high-reward play. And, and, and you know, decision-making approaches sometimes require analysis of not just cost-benefit, but risk-reward. And sometimes you have to take the risk of your play in order to get the higher reward. Well, one of, one of the issues here is, you know, clearly a lot of unknown information. You don't know what you might draw with Necropotence. You don't know what your opponent might have in hand. And those things affect... Uh, affect your decision-making processes. But the question is, is there an optimal play? Is there a, And there's two levels of the question. First of all, is there a knowable optimal play? And here, we might say the answer is no. But then there's another question. If we had information, is there an optimal play? And one of the... Uh, and this is bringing into focus what um, our reader said. He said, I would never assume my opponent plays any less than optimally. Why would you? If you assume they will play optimally and you play to beat that, shouldn't you also beat a player who makes mistakes? Which is a very interesting assumption that I think a lot of players make. A lot of players look at mistake-free play and say, I, if I'm playing optimally and I'm not making mistakes should generally beat this anything, other player. Anything that my opponent does. Yeah, I should be able to defeat this player because they're making mistakes. I am, I am better than them. Which I believe is a good rule of thumb mm-hmm. in terms of evaluating player skill and things like that and your chances in a tournament, stuff like that. But in a very specific scenario, the likes of which we've laid out here, that kind of reasoning doesn't directly apply because decisions in-game are not summative things where you look at the whole game and say who who made more mistakes. Decisions are branching processes whereby if my opponent makes a mistake and makes a suboptimal play, quote unquote, but I'm not prepared for it, that play could still win them the game. Exactly. So we might say, you know, to the the two levels of the question posed, there is such a thing as an optimal play, but we can't know it. As a practical matter, that happens all the time. All the scenarios that we laid out we simply don't know, yeah. you know, what the optimal play is because we just don't have enough information. But if you did have information, I would contend that there are some times where there will be a clearly optimal play, but there are some times where there won't be. And that's where a lot of people get tripped up because there is a widespread assumption in this game that there is always an optimal play. It's just the only reason we don't know it is because we don't have enough information. Mm-hmm. And Kevin, I came up with an example that I think shows you, an abstract example, and we, we have a specific application of it that, that yeah. illustrates just what I was talking about. Well, we were calling this one in the pre-show, we were calling it the ABC or the XYZ example. Let's say, for example, that your opponent has really two choices, A and B. Now, A is the optimal play, as identified by some authority figure, let's just say. <laughs> a is optimal, B is not optimal. You have two responses, no, I'm sorry, You have three responses to these lines of play. You have X, which stops A in its tracks. It it beats the optimal play, but it loses to B. You have Y, which stops B in the tracks, but loses to A. And then you have C. Z. Z. Sorry. X, Y, Z. X, Y, Z. You have Z, which does not lose to either A or B, doesn't lose to whatever your opponent does, 
but it also doesn't cause you to immediately win the game either. It's just right. a safe play that, that causes the game to continue. Exactly. So your opponent does A, you really want to do X because that stops it. But if they do B, you want to have done Y or else you lose. But if you do play Z, you live through whatever they do and you continue the game. Which is the right play. So, which, which is the right plan? Or conventional analysis. Yeah. If you if you follow what our listener says and assume your opponent plays optimally, then you always want to do play X. You always want to play X because they give you, you will win the game once you stop their optimal play. Exactly. But and if, that's the challenge. But if they don't play optimally, you will lose if you play X because you you, you because you've made an assumption about what they're going to do. Yeah. If they play B and you play X, you lose. You need to do a play Y or Z at that point. Right. And so that's the fundamental, that's the basic architecture of how you can understand that the optimal play, even if, it, even if it's knowable, for one, right. <laughs> it, which, it's knowable. which we're not granting, but... Even if it's, it's knowable in the sense that you, you know your opponent's hand and library yeah. and proper role mm-hmm. position. Even if all of that is knowable and known, there is still the case to be made that assuming they're going to make that play is not always the correct thing to do. Because you will lose. It, there are scenarios where yeah, you will lose. And it doesn't have to do with you being the better player or there being the worst player. You could lose, but you will lose if you if they, if, if they don't if you choose the wrong game. option. Yeah. yeah, It doesn't have to do, to do with you being the better player right. and them being the worst player. In right. fact, they may be better than you and, and choose option B just because they're thinking at a different level than you are. Right. <laughs> they, the error in our listeners' uh, argument is assuming that better plays beat all other plays. Right. That's not true. Right. Sub-op- um, suboptimal plays can actually beat the answer to an optimal play, exactly. which is what this is posing. Exactly. Um, and, you know, there are many examples of this. Um, one example that I experienced in a tournament was where I was playing a grow deck against an oath deck. And <laughs> I love this example. <laughs> my opponent... Um, you you duressed them, and their hand was Oath of Druids and Vamp Tutor... And one other other business spell, but the point is, you immediately assessed that you were, you were dead to oath. Yeah, he had oath, vamp, brainstorm, and lands. I decide, I had to decide what to take. If he plays the oath of druids, I lose. He had. Did he have a mox too? Because uh, I thought he was threatening playing it that it, next turn. It was turn two. I duress. Oh, okay. Yeah. So and he could play it next turn. Yeah, he could play it, or he could play vamp for oath and oath there. So he might have had a mox in play. Must have. Yes. Yeah. So the point is, your opponent had basically access to two oaths if they needed to. Right. But your assessment was, if he plays Oath, you're toast either way. Yes. You can you can take the Oath with your duress and give him the opportunity to make a different play. Yes. Which, which and for the context of this argument, we can refer to as a suboptimal play. Yes. And you took the Oath, and he vamped for something that wasn't Oath. Yeah, he actually decided not to vamp. He thought about it in his oh. upkeep, but then decided not I to see. vamp. I see. And then I ended up winning the game. Now, you might say, well, my opponent just messed up. Yes, that's true. But the point is that, first of all, opponents don't always play optimally. Uh-huh. But you have to maximize your chances of, to win. And if you assume that they're going to play optimally, if I was assuming he was playing optimally, I would actually probably take the vamp. Right. Because, it, because you would consider the oath to be a foregone conclusion. You'd like to cut him off of other flexibility. Yes. Right. Um, so, you know, you know the, the, the oath gives me a one-turn window to actually win the game. Like, I mm-hmm. can untap an ancestral into... Lotus and Fastbond and Yogwill, mm-hmm. and then you know, Grow Giant Dryad and Time Walk. But if he's a really super aggressive and and understanding player, he could use that vamp 
to go get force of will to protect his oath or something else exactly. and defend himself. Exactly. I mean, there's there's numerous, or I could have actually just gotten Trigon Predator and Time Walk. <laughs> right. But but the point is the point is that this example shows you where opponents make mistakes. But there are many examples where your opponent um, um, will make a mistake in your assumption that they are playing optimally, rather than being open to the possibility they will they will make a mistake, will actually cause you to lose the game. Right. Because you commit yourself to a line of play. And this could actually come up in a lot of cases when you play demonic tutor, like dueling tutors. Like your opponent plays a tutor, and you play a tutor, and you make an assumption based upon what they made. Right. This is level thinking. This is the, the article on Star City about level thinking. This is, an, this is not uncommon at all. I have encountered this kind of scenario dozens of times where my opponent has demonic tutored with the last of their mana mm-hmm. and I have vamp on their end step, for example. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, it's a shell game almost of, <laughs> uh, you know, where's, where's what tutor target did they get? Which do I yeah. get? And it's definitely, it can, it can come down to a kind of rock, paper, scissors in some cases. But the simple fact is, is that you don't know. Yes. And the imperfect information, you should not assume that you know what they've yes, got. Yes, exactly. And you, you have should be open to possibilities. You should be open to possibilities. I'm not saying you should always assume that they got a non-obvious fact, thing that's either. A, that's a great example of our ABXYZ a, a, scenario. Yeah. You know, your opponent gets... Um, if they get ancestral. If the, yeah, if your opponent gets... Let's just say, like, there's... Uh, they could get um, Tinker or Yawgmoth's Will. You know, mm-hmm. the Demonic Tutor for Tinker or Yawgmoth's Will. Yeah. You know, and... You and you get the vamp, and you get the de- okay. It doesn't matter what you get yeah, the you vamp on their end step. What do you get? Yeah. If, so if they if they have if they have tinker, I want to get an answer for the Colossus, like a Hercules or a Jace. Yes. And plunk it down. If they got Yogmoth's will, then I want to get something that's a that's Tormod's crypt. Tormod's crypt to answer well, their say, graveyard. Let's say you only have two mana, and you it's not vamp, but demonic tutor, and you have to play it now. Right. Right. You, so you're you have two mana. You you draw demonic tutor. You can demonic tutor for Tormod's crypt. You have no cards in your hand, mm-hmm. and stop their Yogmoth's will. Or you can get Hercules Recall to stop their tinker. Right. Which do you get? Right. <laughs> and so, at, at this point, we've got to come up with some kind of uh, some kind of Z argument, though. You could get Force of Will too, right? Well, you'd be tapped down. Let's yeah. say it's a uh, um, well. <laughs> <laughs> Tough call. Yeah, th- th- there could certainly be a, a, a card in that. In that, but yeah, you're, you're right. Let's say you have one blue spell in your hand. Yeah. You could get Force of Will. You'll be spent. Let's say the other blue card in your hand is... Ancestral Recall. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or your own Tinker. Or your own Tinker or a Gush or something that would help push you ahead. Ancestral Recall is... A, right. Uh, You've got three mana and you're holding your own Tinker and a Demonic Tutor. You could go get the answer that you think they got. You could go get the, the Hercules no, Recall or the Tormod's Crypt, which you can cast. Or you can just go get Force of Will. Let's just Cut yourself off mana. of your own you're Tinker. You're holding the Tinker. Yeah. And, and you can't Tinker unless you want to get a... Uh, let's just say, yeah, you get you get force and will. Force and will is a Z play, right? It it's counters, the Z play. It counters both t- their tinker and their. But it's their, not nearly as good will. because you're cutting yourself off. Right. You would love to get ancestral uh, ancestral recall right here, right? Because you could just play ancestral and then you know yep. be way ahead. I think that's a pretty good example of this of this kind of thing. You and a lot of players are safe players. A lot of players will say, "Ah, oh, go yeah. get the defense." The decision depends upon how aggressive you are, yep. what you think your role is, what do you think the risk. But these, you know. But right. It's a judgment call, ultimately. Yep. It's, a, it's a, what's your inclination? <laughs> and we can only do our best to arm our listeners with, you know, the relevant analyses, the relevant scenarios inside of each one, and talk about the pros and the cons of each. But some of these, there, there is no right answer for. But what we're doing is quite subversive. We're, <laughs> I mean, we're challenging a widespread article of faith 
in the ma- in magic, which is that there's always an optimal play, right. even if it's not knowable. So, I mean, you, you know, there's the epistemological argument, which is saying, well, it's not always knowable. And we, we totally endorse that. We know it's not always knowable. But there's the ontological question, which is, is there always an optimal play? We're not saying that there's never an optimal play. Mm-hmm. We're saying that sometimes there is not, in fact, an optimal play. Mm-hmm. And players need to be come to grips with that that and, and, and find that uh, basically find that to be okay <laughs> <laughs> come to peace with the come fact that there is not necessarily an optimal play For our question of the week this episode, we want to ask about Delver of Secrets. What do you think? Now, we've just uh, seen some real action with Delver of Secrets out in Sandusky at the last Team Sirius Open. And do you think that Delver is the real deal? Do you think it's here to stay? Or do you think it's a flash in the pan? This we time, see a bunch of, of fish decks? Yeah, this time next month, are we going to talk about the Delver metagame? <laughs> <laughs> so until next time... Tweet us what you think at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. And as always, we wish you many insane plays. <laughs> <laughs>